how we uh, can approach a discussion of politeness using speech act theory, the notion of direct and indirect speech acts. So it's also quite amusing. I think it's quite amusing. Um, and so I'd encourage you to, to take a few moments to watch, if you didn't already, and think about using that discussion as a model for what you will be doing in Field Notebook 4. I have this start of class quiz open, or poll open, so please click in when you're ready. And let's see. Here we go. Now let me see. Hello, 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 hello. Doesn't matter. Nothing. Maybe I just go like this. Because it's maximally awkward. And awkward is good when we're discussing pragmatics. <laughs> pragmatics gone awry. It's awkwardness. Where we are, we're today my plan is to sort of tie the pragmatics unit up in a little bow, and then transition to the next topic, animal communication systems. This week, what you have due is just the quiz, reading quiz six, due by midnight on Friday. Well, due by 11.59 p.m. But next Friday is field notebook four. So here's what I highly, now see now it has the, Hello. Uh, I'll talk loud. There's lots of room up closer if you have a hard time hearing from in the back. So I will rely on you to let me know. And just sort of monitor yourself on volume since this doesn't seem to be picking up very well. Um, what I would highly recommend you're doing this week is drafting Field Notebook 4 and maybe even bringing it to office hours for me or for somebody else on the team to review before it's due so that you can be maximally sure that you're handing in a field notebook four that's going to get the score you want. This is, these have been increasing in point value throughout the semester. So this one is worth more than the last one, which was worth more than the last one, which was worth more than the first one. And this is the last draft you get before we combine everything into a field report. At the end of the semester, field report is due on the 27th of this month because it's April. I know. March was kind of mean. I don't know if March was mean to you guys. I hope it wasn't. It was kind of mean to some of us guys. So I'm hoping April is nicer. Okay, do we have any questions about the schedule so far? You are uploading, maybe, your politeness article to the Dropbox for Field Notebook 4. You could be the one that you found in the literature and used for your homework for. Assuming that it works, you can upload it to the Dropbox for Field Notebook 4 now. If you find out later that your session instructor wants you to find a different article, you can always upload another article later. So 
better to get it done early and then you don't forget or you don't accidentally upload the wrong file at the last minute and then you realize post hoc. Oh no, I uploaded the wrong thing. So I, I'm running a little bit low on pet pictures from you guys. If you have pet pictures you haven't sent me, you should totally send them to me. But you can also send me your travel photos or your artwork. Um, Alisar sent me a bunch of pictures that are just beautiful from recent travels to Jordan and other places. It's, it's good. It's good to share those things. And plus also, Camels are just awesome. And you can always imagine that they're saying something that's impolite. There's something about them that seems impolite. So, where were we last time? Pragmatics. Pragmatics is the study of. How we use language to accomplish goals. Excellent. True or false? The pragmatic meaning of an utterance is the same as its compositional meaning. False. Right. Does the pragmatic meaning build on the compositional meaning? It can. Right. But it's different. True or false? The pragmatic meaning of an utterance is highly context dependent. True. True. We think we get pragmatic meaning out of context. So we get the compositional meaning out of the actual linguistic act, the more things you say and the order that you put them in. Um, but the pragmatic meaning comes almost entirely from how we understand the situation, how we understand our relationship with each other, where we are, when we are, what we're trying to do. If the thing we say, the linguistic form of our utterance, is the same as what we intend to say, we shall call that a speech act that is direct. And if there's a mismatch, indirect. And the Pinker video that we had running at the start of class is all about direct versus indirect speech acts. So I invite you to use that as a model to think about directness and indirectness in your discussion of pragmatics. Last time we met, this was the last slide we had. And I didn't show you anything on the slide other than its title. So what do we know about pragmatic meaning? One, that it's vastly underdetermined by compositionality. That means that if I know the compositional interpretation of your utterance, I still have no clue what its pragmatic meaning could be. Right? So almost any utterance can be used to mean almost any kind of thing pragmatically. We can't tell from the sentence out of context what it's going to mean. And the rules of interpretation for that, how we understand each other's pragmatic meanings, are highly, highly culture dependent. Really, they're not just cultural dependent, culture dependent, but speech community dependent. That is, I can say something to my mother, and it will mean something entirely different than when I say the same words 
to my friend, right? So speech community just refers to any group of people who have some sort of shared norms for how they understand each other. You can think of speech communities as being very small, and those very small speech communities exist in bigger communities and in bigger communities and so on. But here's the trick. We are typically quite unaware of what the pragmatic norms are, at least uh, overtly unaware. We tend to think of them as natural, um, inevitable ways of using language. So when we're interacting with someone who has a different set of norms, we often will conclude that that person is stupid or rude or offensive instead of realizing that they just don't share the same set of communicative norms. So these pragmatic rules are not common sense. If they were common sense, then you should be able to travel anywhere in the world and interact with anybody you want using the interaction style that you use in your house, and everybody would love you as if, they, as if you were their kid. Right? But you know if you've been to any other community that that's not how it goes, right? You can very easily inadvertently violate communicative norms. Now, as you are addressing the issue of pragmatics in your field notebook four, there's some common mistakes that I want you to avoid. <coughs> so, and, and strategies that I want you to use instead. So one of the things that students often do in a description of politeness, either in you know, I, I ask you to say what are some politeness norms in your own community in American English or in your community that you're studying, and students will say things like this. This says, speakers show politeness by talking more nicely. What's wrong? What does nicely mean? Right. How about this one? <coughs> People will say, oh, well, speakers don't use slang when they're trying to be polite. What's, what constitutes slang in your speech community and why? So the terms that constitute slang in the speech community in which I was raised are almost all terms that refer to sexuality, bodily function, or religion. And there are terms that are stereotypically associated with younger speakers. And they're terms that stereotypically one should never use in front of one's parent, except we know from good studies of American English speaking families that these terms are regularly used in the family unit, and in fact, that's where most people learn them. Yes, ma'am? Could you give the example of all the slang that you just give? Can you yes. still put that as the pragmatic and politeness if you say slang is, and then just give off the example? If you say, so could you say um, they don't use slang? and then define what you mean by slang. That's better than just saying this. I'd advise you, though, just to avoid the term slang entirely, because it means so many things to, to different people. So I would just keep the definition and, and avoid that guy. Some people want to imagine communities in which everybody is just always polite. Therefore, there's no impolite speech registers. What's wrong with that? Not really. Yeah, you're supposed to be creating a plausible human community. There is no known human community that, that does that. So we all have ways to insult each other, which is an interesting fact. We all have ways to be rude. 
seems to be part of the human condition that we want to be able to both praise and ridicule each other. We want to be able to tell each other the truth and lie to each other. Go ahead. As far as the idea that the argument have a tendency to want to classify people, so well, when I read really to insult you, you can't put them in a lower class view. So there's, yeah, and this is all related to people's need to have complex social systems and to enact those systems in, uh, in language. What's wrong with this? So you haven't said what politeness is and you haven't said what a formal situation is. This is probably going to be universally true, right? What constitutes a formal situation? Well, you can define that as a situation requiring politeness. Or vice versa. Right, so it says nothing. What about this one? Polite speech is smooth and fluid. You have to tell me what you mean by smooth and fluid. Those aren't well, well defined acoustic measures. What you hear as smooth and fluid, others might hear as guttural and terrible, right? It's these are value judgments, not actual phenomena. So instead of saying things like that, I want you to try to be very specific. And by being very specific in your field number four, I want your statements about politeness in any society to have at least two pieces. The piece that's in blue is the linguistic strategy. And that's a specific strategy which we'll briefly touch on today. The thing in green is a specific context, okay? Specific strategy, honorification. Specific strategy, you can talk about directness. I'm not gonna go through direct and indirect anymore because I think we've covered that, right? But that's a really specific context. Specific strategy, violating the maxim of manner, which we'll discuss when introducing themselves to strangers. Okay, so I want you to be specific and precise. And the nice thing about these elements that are in blue is that these are the elements that we find cross-linguistically cross speakers manipulate for politeness. They're linguistically well-defined. So you now know how to tell when a, a speech act is direct or indirect. We'll talk about honorifics and maxims a little bit today. So, in your society, you want to pick a context. So these contexts are taken from. Let's see, do I have anyone else? These contexts are taken from an article by Keith Basso on Western Apache culture. Their context in that society, which call for politeness, according to Basso. So you can think about these kinds of contexts. They're, they're not the only possible places where politeness is called for, right? But, but they're good examples of things. And then pick a strategy. Honorification, which we'll discuss. Manipulation of directness, which you already know about. Conversational maxims, which we'll discuss. Excellent. That's a seal. You might be showing honorification for something. So let's talk about what that means, honorification. Some languages have a system inside the grammar that explicitly marks 
esteem, respect, social rank. These are used for speakers to create relationships between <coughs> each other. Some languages that have really elaborate grammatical systems for doing this include those guys. Most of the languages of Southeast Asia and the Pacific, interestingly, have lots of grammatical honorification. What would an honorification system look like? Well, here's an example from Japanese. <coughs> So in Japanese, we have particular morphemes. In this case, do you see that little prefix O? And it's glossed as han, which means honorific. Um, this guy is a prefix, and this is kind of cool. You put the prefix on the noun. So here's the noun that means sushi you put the honorific prefix on the noun that means sushi, but this does not show that you're being deferential to sushi, right? Instead, you would use this when you're talking about something that belongs to a person of higher rank. So if I'm talking to my younger sibling and about her presentation, I might not use this guy, but if I'm talking to my boss, about his presentation, I would use that guy. So you see what it means, honorification? There's something in the grammar. So grammar geeks in the room, those of you who love field notebook students, could not get enough of the three-line glossing, you should totally go for honorification because it's right in the grammar. There are lots of other ways in Japanese that you can show respect for other people. There are little affixes that go on verbs, affixes that go on adjectives. It's very complicated. The rules for using them are very complicated. You could propose an honorific system for your language, but you don't have to. So you can talk about speech act directness and indirectness. In particular contexts, that's fine. You can give examples of honorification. In particular contexts, that's great. Here's the third general way of thinking about pragmatics and politeness. This is an observation made by a, philo a philosopher, no, a philosopher called Paul Grice. Paul Grice proposed that there is a principle underlying human interpretation of each other's language acts. And the principle is this. We think that everybody we're talking to, all else being equal, is going to make their conversational contribution, such as is required at the stage where it occurs, by the accepted purpose or direction of the talk exchange in which they are engaged. Okay. What does that actually mean? What it means is that all speakers in all cultures should have a reasonable expectation when they're talking to each other that the person they're talking to is trying to have a conversation with them. That is, they're not crazy. They're not trying to mislead them. They're not trying to uh, make them confused, right? We think we're, when we're talking to a person that the person 
all else being equal, is probably trying to construct a conversation with us cooperatively. This belief that we think we have, we think all humans have, about our conversations is a belief that informs our interpretation of each other's actions, but it does not strictly govern our actions. There are lots of, of cases in which speakers are required to be non-cooperative in certain ways, or speakers may choose to be non-cooperative in certain ways. It's just that we don't generally expect them to do that. Oh, and those are dogs in Giza. Egyptian dogs are awesome. It's a, it, there's a whole different way of thinking about, and there's all these feral dogs, and they're just cool. Anyway. I just violated the maximum of communication, maximum of conversation that I'll talk about here in a minute. So let me show you how this works. Imagine you're in an interaction. You're person A, you say, you see person B, and you say, hey, are you going to the study session? Person B says, are you crazy? So, two possible interpretations. Interpretation one, this person believes that that statement, are you crazy, actually answers the question, right? So, what do you think, do you think that person B is going to the study session? It's highly context dependent, right? It could mean, are you crazy? These study sessions are horrible. Why would I go to them? Or are you crazy? I'm too busy. I could never go. It could also, that could also mean, are you crazy? Missing a study session would be horrible. Of course I'm going, right? Highly context dependent. But either of those interpretations assumes that B is being cooperative. The other possibility, which I would argue humans almost never do, is to assume that person B is, uh, is, is making a statement that should be interpreted compositionally. Right? So it could be the case that person B is actually worried about the mental state of person A. In that case, this would be a direct speech act. Right? We almost never understand each other that way. Though we give each other lots and lots of opportunities to understand each other that way. And Bryce argues that the reason that we can interpret these kinds of utterances is because we assume that we're being cooperative. So if person B says something in answer to a question, person A is going to assume that person B thinks that's a good answer, all else being equal. So that's the one that we don't do. And we don't do that because we assume we're being cooperative. So that's the general principle, the cooperative principle. If you're going to use this to analyze discourse in your society, you'll want to break this guy down into these four subparts, maxims. He calls them maxims. The maximum quality, maximum quantity, maximum relation, maximum manner. Those are the ones you get to choose from, and let's talk about each of them. So the maximum quality. 
this is it's very interesting how how Bryce wrote about these things. He states these maxims as commandments. Don't do blurb. But you could think of them not as commandments, rather as expectations. I expect that the person I'm talking to is not lying to me. Grace, uh, I'm sorry, Grace states it this way. <coughs> these are really the two pieces. And I think these two pieces of the maxim of quality correspond to most of our understandings of the different kinds of deception that people can engage in. So, maxim of quality says, do not say that which you believe to be false. That's a pretty good definition of what we probably think of as direct deception. If I tell you, ah, um, this classroom is going to be filled in by concrete tomorrow, that's a very stupid lie to tell you. I don't believe that to be true, but that's, that's a thing that uh, I'm saying that I believe to be false. The second part of it is don't say stuff that you actually don't have evidence for. This is the, the spread rumors piece. And what Bryce is saying here is that when we hear somebody tell us something in a conversation, all else being equal, we're going to assume that they believe what they're saying and that they feel they have sufficient reason to believe what they are saying. So, when do we violate these maxims? Well, sometimes you are forced to violate maxims in order to be polite. So, we have our example here. We believe this to be false. Person's wearing some horrible thing, but you know that they're insecure and they just need your, your approval. So you say, oh, you look great. That's awesome. Why do we do that? Because the pragmatic meaning of this is doing the right thing for the relationship that we're trying to build with the person. <laughs> so, we do the other kind, and this is a, a quote actually from a student's paper. I would argue it's a, vex, a, a violation of the second part of the maxim of quality. Do not say that for which you lack sufficient evidence. Student says, my language is unique in that it involves both voice and voiceless sounds. How is that a violation of quality? Okay. I know it Right, so if, if you're going to say this, I assume that you have enough evidence to say it, but I happen to know that it's wrong. So I think what you're doing is you're trying to sound smart by saying something that you don't, say, stating a fact that actually you don't know to be a fact. It's a common mistake that students make, that scholars make too. You'll also hear it made all the time in political rhetoric. Did you guys, there, there's a, a candidate in the Republican primary and shall re remain nameless who made a claim about um, the medical system in Holland, that in Holland you have to carry a card that says, euthanize me or not. It was some crazy claim because in this, this is a place where physician assisted uh, is, is legal, right? And he was completely wrong, completely wrong. But he said it. And when he was called on having said it, 
he said, well, and actually, I didn't hear what he responded, but his press secretary said, oh, well, he was just saying what was in his heart. Not that it's only like, everybody across the political spectrum, you will find cases of this all of the time. People saying things as if they're factual, that are factual. That's a violation of this rule that says you should only say stuff that you either believe to be true or have sufficient evidence to be true. This is why when people say stuff like this, it often works. Because their listener believes that they wouldn't say it if they didn't have sufficient evidence. So things become true in the record that aren't actually true. Go ahead, please. The most famous one was uh, the Read My Lips. Oh, right, right, right. Bush the Younger. These children don't remember that. Yeah. So we expect that when somebody says something, they have good reason to believe it's true. That's different than saying, when somebody says something that we know to a certainty that it's true, right? That's different. Okay. So you can think of the maxim of quality as being, if you say it, it should be true. And if you're not sure whether it's true or not, you should have done your due diligence on it. Maxim of quantity says, we expect that speakers are going to give us exactly the right amount of information that we need for whatever we're trying to do in the conversation. So we shouldn't share more information than is necessary. And we shouldn't share less information than is necessary. Um, so imagine we've got business co-workers coming across each other. And one says, hey, how are you? And the second one answers, Oh, I'm not doing well at all because I think I'm coming down with the flu and everything aches, but I have to take five tests in the next week. Is that what we do when someone says, Hi, how are you? <laughs> it depends. I would argue you're passing somebody in the hallway and say, Hey, how are you? You are actually not expecting a contentful answer to the question. <laughs> Right? And people who give you a contentful answer can be perceived as rude or really awkward. Right? There are lots of societies, though, in which this kind of talk is, is what you would expect. So there are lots of societies in which if you ask somebody how they're doing, the expectation is that you actually want to know. And I've been told that this is one of the areas where international students often get most freaked out early on in their joining of American English culture. That everybody is asking them forever and a day how they are, but nobody wants to know. Now, quantity means amount of information, not number of words. So you can violate the maximum of quantity even if you only provide a few words. I'm a person who has many dogs, and I love to talk about my dogs. Often my colleagues will say, when they see me after a weekend or something, they'll say, hey, how are your dogs? They mean, hi, how are you? I'm supposed to say, great. What's wrong about this? Why, why is that a violation of quantity? You know what zero of zero means. Okay, so assume you already knew this is zero. Okay. He's a good dog. 
zero had a tapeworm. Ew! That's more information <laughs> than anybody wants to know. I could have said, oh, he, got, he was sick, but he's doing better. Right, that's fine. So the amount of information in an interaction isn't the number of words. It's the amount of information. In the, in the world of the Facebook and the Twitter and all of those things, I think we are in a constant barrage of too much information kind of interaction. <laughs> and you can tell when this is happening. Okay. But we also can violate the maximum of quantity by providing too little information. We talked about this kind of exchange before. My Uncle Cliff always would say, and then laugh at you and walk away. <laughs> so the problem is that speaker B knows what speaker A wants, but chooses not to give that person the information. So this is not how we expect each other to behave. Sometimes we behave that way anyway. So the maximum of quantity says don't say too much, don't say too little. But what counts as too much or too little is highly context specific. The maxim of relation is next. And here are some cute baby penguins. <laughs> okay, maxim of relation. Actually, I need to close the start of class poll, huh? 116. If somebody could try it for a head count, that would be great. Thanks. Let me put this away. Maxim of relation says, be relevant. Now, you should know about this guy. Some people call it the ma maxim of relation. Some people call it the maxim of relevance. I have been known to freely vary those two terms, but they mean the same thing. Okay? So if you see maxim of relation, know that that means relevance. If you see maxim of relevance, know that that means relevance. You can use either. You'll be okay. A simple statement of the maximum of relation needs to be relevant. We tend to interpret things that look like they might be violations of the maximum of relevance as though they must be relevant somehow, so we struggle to try to make sense of the, of the interaction. This is an interaction that would have made sense back in the olden times, before 24-hour news channels, right? So somebody says, hey, is it 10 o'clock? I can say, oh, well, the news is on. Is that a yes or a no? Yeah, no. In this time zone, it would have been a yes. <laughs> In Pacific time zone, it would have been a no because news was at 11 in the evenings. See, you guys said. Now news is always on, so it doesn't help. But sometimes, violations of the maximum relation can be more obvious. So remember the penguins? I am a relation maxim violator all the time. You guys have seen the movie Up? Yes. Remember Doug? A dog? Squirrel? <laughs> maximum relation violation. <laughs> Some poor students, especially early in the semester, will be looking for meaning in these things. Be like, oh, I had all these, these points on a slide with a puppy. So maybe the points are about a puppy. But usually they're not. 
<laughs> okay, one more maxim, and we're good. The maxim of manner. Yes, Chris. Um, would it be more on relation or quantity if, or does it just depend on, um, say, you're talking about a four-legged feline that's domesticated or a house cat? Ah, so that's a good question. So when there's terminology difference, like you can use, use the word cat, or you can use the word, the term feline, quadruped, the mammalian order, blah, blah, blah. Are those, is that violation necessarily of relation or quantity maybe? I'd actually argue that it's a, a violation of the maxim of manner if it's a violation at all. So if I'm in vet school and I'm answering an exam item, I might want to say mammalian, pelidae, domestic diet. <laughs> right. That might be felicitous in that context. If I'm talking to my mom on the phone, I, I want to say cat. So maxim of manner says be clear and concise. Actually, the maxim of manner does not say this. Here is how Grace uh, formulated the maxim of manner. You should read this and we'll laugh hysterically. This is philosopher Tina. <laughs> How does he define it? Avoid obscurity of expression. Uh, avoid ambiguity. I like this part. Avoid unnecessary prolixity. Because we all know the word prolixity. That just means wordiness. I think I might have the definition on the slide. And then be orderly. That means go in some logical order. Now, this is, a, this is what we expect from each other, all else being equal. I will tell you that if you become an academic, you must hone your skills in violation, violation of the maxim of manner. When you read those JSTOR articles that you're, you were looking at, like for your basic constituent order stuff, or the politeness stuff, or even the IPA, was it all nice and clear and concise? No. <gasps> Why? Why are scholarly articles so often in violation of the maxim of manner? They want the kind of person to read it and feel like they have value at the next Because it's all about expert jargon. It's all about defining a community of like-minded people, right? So you get a degree in something. You're doing this half the time. Your college degree is just about learning to decode jargon, right? You're joining the club. So, right. So, we humans seem to use the development of obscure jargon in order to identify like-minded others and form little communities. It's very cute that we do this. Um, but it, we do it in violation of the maxim. So, there's prolixity. That's from the OED, the Oxford English Dictionary. <coughs> See, it's just, don't be too long. Like the definition. Said that, sometimes I violate the maximum manner. You guys know when that happens, because you go, what? So All right. So, Bryce said,
community and you're talking with other people, all else being equal, we expect each other to be telling the truth, giving us the right amount of information, being relevant to whatever's being discussed, and being clear. And to the extent that we don't do those things, the violations are what we interpret, right? So the violations of the, of the maxims give us pragmatic meaning. Grice calls that kind of pragmatic meaning conversational implicature. Conversational implicature. So if you wanted to use this as a way of discussing politeness in your society, you could identify contexts in which speakers were expected to lie to each other, or expected to give each other too much or too little information, or expected to change the subject. You, you, you've been in interactions, right, where it was just required that somebody change the subject, particularly when somebody else was starting to violate the maximum quantity. Yeah? yeah. Faculty meetings, oh my word. being equal, what that means is that we expect them to be true unless our interactant is trying to create pragmatic meaning by violating them. Okay. So I know to expect certain contexts in which my conversational interactant is supposed to lie to me. Right. But that's not the normal thing. When they do that, it's because they're they're required to try to communicate something other than the compositional meaning of their utterance. They're trying to show respect, or they're trying to build a relationship, or they're trying to be funny, or they're something. Yeah? Very good. Try to imagine, if you would, a society in which you couldn't assume this. You know about the, the um, there's a paradox, the Cretans paradox? Where the Cretan says, all Cretans are liars. Uh, or imagine the true-false question. I won't put this on your exam, but I've been sorely tempted to put it on a pragmatics exam. True-false question. This statement is false. <laughs> ah, no, but that is true. If it's true, it's false. If it's false, it's true. If we don't have a running assumption of cooperativity, it's hard to understand how we could communicate successfully at all. And we know that linguistic behavior is all about creating meaning, right? We create meaning compositionally, we create meaning pragmatically, we're all about creating meaning, sometimes meaning to share with other people, but not always, right? We use language to create meaning for our own selves. You've had thoughts that you have not communicated to others, that maybe you've encoded in language. Right? So we know that that's kind of what language does. Now our next step is to figure out whether anybody else does it the way humans do it. So what about non-humans. The entire course 
up to this point has been a primer on the properties that are universal to human languages. Okay, so we define this thing called a naturally occurring human language. Naturally occurring human language is a language in, well, it's a kind of communication system, right? It's used by humans. What else did it have to have to be a naturally occurring human language? Has to be acquired naturally during early childhood and has to be the primary means of communication of some human community. Okay. That's what a naturally occurring human language is. So one way to try to understand how that relates to other kinds of systems for communicating that people other than people do is to take the universal properties of those guys, things that fit that description, and see if we find those properties in anybody else's communication system. So anybody else, well, who would you want to look at? Aliens? There's this famous Chomsky parable that motivates a whole lot of this kind of study of language where he assumes a Martian comes to visit the Earth. Like, just make it up, we know there's no Martians. Well, we think we know there's no Martians. And he studies all the human languages, and Chomsky says, well, obviously, the Martian would notice that all human languages vary only superficially from each other. That they obviously are the same system, just kind of different instantiation. But if we're sticking to earthlings, who would you think would be most likely, if somebody else has language, who would you want to look at to find out whether they do or not? So a lot of people look at primates, right? Apes. Domestic animals, animals that are in a lot of contact with humans, yeah? I'd say I would say any animals that coordinate in the hunting and Social animals, because clearly language is a social thing. It's a tool for social coordination. Excellent. Do we know whether other critters on the planet have communication systems? Yes, yes we do. And Yes, they absolutely all do. So if what you wanted to ask is, does any other animal have a communication system? The answer is yes, and we can close up shop right now. Because not only do all the ones you think of that are like quadrupeds or pets or apes, but slime molds, single cellular animals, can be shown to have communication systems. I know, it's awesome. So the question we want to ask is, do those communication systems count as language? Just to give you an idea of the nature of the question, we know that there are lots and lots of communication systems out there. There's some subset of them that are about chemical signals. This is what the, the slime molds do. They send out little, they, they excrete little chemicals and they figure out, like if you want to figure out, you've got a map of a city and you want to figure out the most direct train routes to different parts, give it to slime molds. They figure that out really, really well. Yeah. Um, cephalopods, octopus, squids, those guys, they 
changing the color and texture of their skin. It's amazing. We'll see a little bit of it. We have lots of, of animals that communicate with each other very clearly, including humans, by the way. Full body movements. So languages are just a, some specific kind of communication system. And in particular, languages are a kind of communication system in which we have this kind of structure. I'm going to open a poll for a close of class poll so you can check in. So we know that what human languages do, first step, is they identify the possible atoms in spoken languages, those are phonetic elements. And each language picks a subset of those. That's what you get in field level two. Okay. And they make a phonemic inventory. That they then syllabify. Spoken languages do this. Sign languages have rhythmic units, too. That they then assign <coughs> to units of meaning. Right? Things like stems and affixes and word building processes that they then very slowly apparently build into more complex utterances. Right. This is very complex. And it's a particular way I just did. It's a particular way of building up meaning, right? Where we start with individual units that don't themselves mean anything, that get, get concatenated into rhythmic units, that get concatenated into meaningful units, that get concatenated so that they can be interpreted by the principle of compositionality. And then, so that they can be reinterpreted according to pragmatics. That's what we would need to see in someone else's communication system before we could call it language. Right? That's a very high bar. And it requires that we know a lot about other communication systems. So over the next couple of times, we'll look at the research and see where it stands in terms of answering this question. Does anybody else have language? And I will see you guys on Wednesday, right? Today's Monday still? I'll see you on Wednesday. Here's a paradox for you. Uh, if Pinocchio said, my nose would grow. <laughs> That's excellent. Yes, it's the liar's paradox.